This week on the Physio Foundations podcast, I'm talking to physiotherapist and osteopath Yarp Switters about men's health. And we're going to talk about common conditions that you need to be aware of as a practitioner and management strategies. Welcome back to the Physio Foundations podcast, where we talk about the knowledge and skills that provide the foundation of expert clinical practice. So in this episode, we're welcoming back a guest to the podcast who's been on before, Yarp Switters. And Yarp's going to take us on a deep dive into the range of men's health issues that you may see in clinical practice, including chronic pelvic pain, sexual dysfunction, and other issues that are really important for us to talk about and understand as practitioners. So Yarp is a physio and an osteopath with a special interest and expertise in men's health and managing these complex conditions in his clinic in Vienna, Austria. And it's, as I mentioned, it's Yarp's second time on the podcast. So if you want an introduction to Yarp, what he does and who he is, um, and an introduction to these concepts, you can go back and find the previous episode and have a listen to that. But let's pick up where we left off last time and welcome Yarp back. So, Yarp Switters, welcome back to Physio Foundations. Thank you for having me. Excellent. So this was your idea. So we were we talk a bit. We're good friends offline. We've done two episodes together here. We did our masters together way back when. When was it? Two thousand eight. Two thousand and eight in Adelaide, Australia. Good fun. Yes. <laughs> wow. Don't say it out loud. And um, so, you know, so we know each other well. We can really get stuck into this topic. Um, how are you, first of all? I'm fine. Thank you. How's everything going on the other side of the earth? So it is the winter is coming. <laughs> so it's getting cold, dark, and it's wet outside. So very miserable. But the yeah. summer was, <laughs> you were saying you had a, had a hotter summer over Vienna and there was, there's a few it's hot, a hot days. Summer and a hot September and a really hot, unusual hot October as well. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's changing a bit. Mm, concerningly hot at that time of year. It is and hardly yeah. any rain, which is also a bit, bit concerning. Yeah. Right. Well, look, it, well, it's November all around the world. <laughs> November, <laughs> right? So November's coming up in Melbourne as well. And November is known all around Australia and, and I understand around the world as well as Movember, the month when guys grow a moustache, a moustache, a tash, facial hair of some sort to celebrate Men's Health Month. And so perfect timing to bring you on again and talk about some of these issues. So let's talk about that and we'll talk in, about your special interest areas and, and specialization. We'll define some terminology. So, um, did I get that right? Is Movember a universally celebrated month where around the world? Do, do you know? Yeah. So as, as I know in Europe, it's definitely Movember is, is, is well known. And I think even for a long time, I think it's, I remember, I think around 10 years already, I saw the people growing a mustache in, in November. And I think it's a really important issue um, also to make more awareness of, of men's health in general. So it could be um, mental health, but also sexual health or general health. Mm. And to make more awareness and it's open to talk about, I think it's a, a really important issue. Absolutely. Yeah. And are you growing a moustache? Uh, I've been growing since last year and it's not much coming. Yeah, right. I just, I just, <laughs> next year is going to be just, there. <laughs> it's very faint if you are growing it. But that, that's excellent. All right. Well, let's talk about that. So tell us about your special interest area and in specialization. So you see people in the clinic um, of, of all types of people, but what are your special interest areas? And, and let's move towards talking about men's health and sexual health and, and chronic pelvic pain. So in, in general, I work a lot with uh, male chronic pelvic pain, but male chronic pelvic pain is in general like an umbrella term. So it has many um, parts in it. So for example, uh, you have also the definition of uh, chronic scrotal pain or, or chronic testicle pain, or also one, some people say that's something separate, others say it's a, a part of chronic pelvic pain as well. With chronic pelvic pain in general, you have also uh, sexual dysfunction meaning that males have problems with uh, erection, could be premature ejaculation, could be also a low libido. And also what is in between, oh, it's also in a little bit there, could be an overactive bladder. 
And over at bladder means they have uh, the, the frequency of going to the toilets is increased. And it could be in general quite bothersome as well. And I, how I explain it always to a little bit of my patient because they have a, a lot of symptoms combined in one term of chronic pelvic pain. It's a little bit of, it's my noisy neighbors theory. So in general, you have an apartment complex and when you start with having pain in the perineum, so around the area of the prostate, and when you compare that as an apartment, you put really loud the sound on, really loud music. At one point, your neighbor gets angry and gets annoyed as well. And she could communicate that with you with bouncing on the walls and start screaming at you that you have to turn out the sound, turn off the sound or make it more silent or less noisy. And when she start doing that, the neighbor upstairs could be a little bit aggravated as well. And she start jumping on the floor and say, <laughs> everybody has to, has to turn down the music and shut up because she wants to have a nice rest of sleep. And what's going on over there in this procession is that it starts to complain in the perineal region. And at one point, the bladder becomes active as well. And at the other point, also of your the sexual organs, if you can get, create pain perhaps in, in the testicles, you can create pain in the penis or even create sexual dysfunction in that area. And when that stays over a long period over time, it can be become more and more and more and more complex. And that's a little bit of the of uh, an explanation how it works. And that's also a little bit of the strategy to reduce it or turn it in the other way around. So it's not only you have to focus at one point on your own music, but my neighbor is also programmed for it. When you say, okay, I turned off the music and I dropped the pen, she will become really reactive at that point as you start bouncing the walls again because she's afraid the noise starts again. And that's also of a process with kids, especially when it's chronic and it's of a long period over time. It takes time as well to reprogram or retrain the brain a little bit or retrain the neighbors again to make it all in general better. That's a really nice analogy because it really brings in the irritability of something else that you can't control that's annoying you. And I can imagine, you know, when the music starts, you think, oh, here they go again. And you're already angry. And, yep. and you mentioned bother before. And, and how these conditions are bothersome, which is sort of captured in the, that analogy, which is really good. Mm -hmm. What causes chronic pelvic pain? Uh, could be really um, yeah, different. So sometimes it could be just in general, they have a, a prostatitis. They have a really acute prostatitis. Um, and they get treated with that with, with antibiotics or the normal treatment strategy of the urologist. And you can see then for the most of them, they, the, the, the prostatitis is gone, but the complaints are still over there. They're still, or the, the, the music is still playing, even if there's, um, if there's not really a source for it. And in general, what you see with, with chronic pelvic pain when it starts, it usually starts also with a stressful life event. So, for example, when you have a prostatitis and as a, perhaps as a student, you have a lot of big exams coming up and it's a really stressful period as well. Um, it can turn off, uh, it can, the, the, as I say, the, the volume stays on, even if the source is gone already. And that's, that's perhaps one source. So your brain is a little bit in a fight, flight or freeze modus and it can't shut it down. And sometimes it could also uh, be something from the past as well. It could be a trauma from the past as well in a certain area, which also is a stressful event, of course, and the music stays on. And I think in general, what is a, a good example as well for, for patient is a little bit like the, the, the norovirus. You probably know it, the norovirus. And so when you have to fight, especially when you have children and it goes in, in, in um, in the kindergarten or something in the daily care, when it goes around, you have that virus in you and you know the next 24 hours to 48 hours, you're going to get really sick. So you're going to be, you have to probably get diarrhea, perhaps you have to throw up and every family member has it a little bit different. Mm. And in general, it's the last meal you have, of course, you're going to throw up. And the brain creates the memory of the last meal you had. When you say you have like a, a kebab with a lot of garlic sauce with it, Gosh. you throw it up and your brain thinks, oh my God, garlic sauce is really bad for you. It's a danger. And next time, even if you're healed, even if it's the garlic is not really fault for it because it's the virus, if you walk down the street and you smell it again or you see it again, the first thing what you're going to happen, you get nausea. 
the nausea is there to protect you because the brain made a connection, the neuroplasticity of your brain to protect you from not eating it again. And that's mm. a little bit the same with the chronic pelvic pain. The brain made a connection with the stress and the stress creates then the pain in that area to protect you, even if it's not necessary anymore. But that's a little bit how the brain works. Its only function is to keep you safe and to survive and not really how to make you feel pleasant or anything. Well, that's, that's the second part. But the first part is to stay alive. And that's no, a little yeah. bit of the, the, the working together with chronic pelvic pain, where you see also a little bit in the literature that usually it's combined with a stressful event. Isn't that interesting? There's, I haven't heard of nausea described in that way in terms of its protective function. Of course it is. But, you know, and linking it to the, the brain's uh, interpretation of what's gone on, which is the last meal you've had. And so you've, your analogies so far are a, a big party with music playing and kebabs <laughs> with garlic in them. So I guess there's one about, <laughs> there's te- tequila analogies coming up and, and, and look, and we are talking about men's health and your job is to make a empathetic connection with men and you know, I can see where, you, where your analogies have been developed in those conversations. Yeah. <laughs> You've got to make other men laugh and, and, and draw out those honest um, descriptions and, and make them and comfortable, right? Yeah. Easy to understand this. And I think everybody had something with the meals that, that they know that when they smell it, you already get the nausea with it. That's, yeah. that's, that's, and it's sometimes easier to understand than pain. Mm. And so, so often related to those stressful life events. So if we're talking to our students and new grad audience here, and they're trying to manage the complexity of every person is complex in their own way, but some people are more complex than others, especially if they have assistant pain or chronic pelvic pain, for example, and they're trying to make sense of all this, perhaps one of the first things they can think about in, in these suite of conditions, this this group of conditions, I should say, is the presence of a stressful life event. Um, it, what, what examples are there of stressful life ex- events? So you sort of mentioned students with exams coming up. I guess there's job stresses. There's, there's many types of different stresses that can many. affect yes, people. So, yeah. So it could be in, in, in that situation, acute part of a stress. So what we mentioned, it could be um, a relationship. It could be uh, working stress, a lot of deadlines at a certain time. It could be that somebody uh, got sick in your, in your uh, family or your friend's area where you have, have a huge impact. It could also be, uh, for example, for, for especially when you get pain in the perineum area, they, yeah, it, it triggers a memory of, of somebody uh, who had for example, prostate crap, uh, cancer. And, and, and it remembers, oh my God, perhaps I have it as well. And it triggers a, a response as well. And a, you, in, in general, your brain goes to a fight, flight or freeze modus. And that's to, to protect you. And sometimes it could be a memory of the past. So it's like adverse childhood experiences could be as well. It's uh, some an important person in your life uh, left. Uh, could be death. Could be a divorce. It could be ne- neglect of, of 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 the child. That could also bring up some memories and where your brain starts uh, it, to get in this this uh, fight, flight, and freeze modus. Or it could be an actual trauma of trauma. I say in a stressful event is like I have these complaints and nobody knows what it is, and that also contributes. To, to get this, the brain uh, in this vicious circle. And that's a little bit of the, so it could be from the past, it could be in the present, but it could also that, that nobody can help me or nobody finds uh, anything. And, and that's a little bit of the, uh, how a person works as well. And I always have it, so the patients which I've seen, so you have, um, I will give an example as well for last year, you had a, uh, a, a football player who was uh, had made a big transfer, and then after a couple of weeks, he was diagnosed with testicle cancer. And because he was quite famous, and a lot of circles like a lot of knew him as well, it was a lot of in the newspapers, and that created a lot of attentions for young males as well. So it could be testicle cancer; can everybody have it as well? And so what you see there with the urologist as well, so more uh, young men went to the urologist because they felt something and they were afraid that it could have testicle cancer as well. 
And then you have those patients and they were lucky, they find a good urologist and you say, okay, it's good you're here and we're going to have a look at it. And they did the, the test, perhaps the ultrasound, blood diagnosis and so on. And the urologist said, everything is fine. It's a good thing you came over here. It's good that we looked for it. And most of the times those patients go out and even the pain is gone. So they, they were for that the alarm system was on and they go out and like, thank God, everything is fine. and don't need to worry anymore. And some of those patients come home and they think after a while, eh, perhaps he was wrong. Perhaps mm, he missed something. Perhaps he didn't look and they can switch the alarm system on again. And that's a really, and those is sometimes quite hard because they always find something on Google or they have some beliefs or something that something must be wrong. And then you have another people of else. You have one person who can shut off the alarm system and doesn't come back. The other can shut it off because they put it on again. And perhaps the third person doesn't even have a clue how to turn it off. And it's like, oh, I'm going out, it's still painful. And he says, everything is fine, but I can feel it. And with those people, it's like, they don't really have a clue how to turn it off. You can be really helpful, for example, with patient education, uh, could be pain neuroeducation, and to see how it works and what for active strategies they can do to turn off the alarm system. And that's a little bit of, of the patient who could be really helpful. Sometimes it could just be one treatment. It could be really successful. Sometimes it takes a bit more. But with the patient who can turn off their own alarm system, that's a little bit of a challenge because it's also a little bit of the, I see the personality, what they have. And, they, um, and that needs a big a bigger time of a change and it needs more, uh, I say, perhaps confidence, uh, perhaps they do more examinations, which can go both ways. They can aggravate it again or they can turn it off again. And there's a little bit of the different types of patients you can have in your clinic. Does that make sense? Yeah, it it does. It's very interesting. I'm thinking about uh, other conditions where we're, we're pushing patients to not have investigations such as lower back pain for most Mm -hmm. people with non-specific low back pain. And in this case, the difference is that those scans are warranted because it could be cancer. So they're they're going there with some fear and uncertainty, having the investigation and having a very relieving conversation that says, you know, the, the pain is not caused by cancer. And then that switching off of the alarm system that's going on in that case that you don't necessarily get when you go and have some back pain, go and have a back MRI, find a report that you get given out of context without any real education that describes all sorts of things that you've had for years anyway. Yep. And yeah, that may or may not be correlated with any of your symptoms. It's almost the opposite situation. And the difference being that in the case of someone who's going in there with suspected testicular cancer, that's the a very valid thing to be worried about. And then that alarm system, for some people you say, switches off. So, so when the alarm system doesn't switch off, that's obviously more difficult to work with. So I'm thinking about practitioners without post-grad training, without years of expertise. Can the average new graduate help men with chronic pelvic pain? Uh, and if so, where, where do they start? I think the first start in general is um, so when I, when I when I start with as well. So when you have a person have like six or eight years pelvic pain, they have a lot of knowledge. They have a lot of information, and they going in one way test you a little bit as well. Do you have the same information, or do you know anything about this topic as well? And I think that's an important part as a therapist. If you specialize in a certain area, you have to read a lot. So you have to get some publications, perhaps you order some books. Nowadays, you have some good podcasts and you listen to these podcasts. Perhaps even you're lucky there's a course nearby or you have an online course that you create your knowledge for yourself as well, that you know about the topic. And when they have certain questions or even the the term chronic pelvic pain, so not everybody knows that term as either. And that's an important or reassurance for the patient as well. So I, I know I'm going over here. Uh, this therapist or this health professional knows about it, can help me with it. And that already reassures, gives confidence as well. And that already helps to turn off a little bit of the alarm system. So that's that's the first part. The second part is it's it's always... Kick, 
when you have so many examinations, perhaps they have got an MRI of the, of the pelvic region, they have an ultrasound, they have blood tests, they have so many different tests and they didn't find anything. I think always the first message is that's something really good. Mm, mm. It's not a bad thing, is it? That's is it what you want. Thing? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, you don't have any cancer. You don't have an infect. You don't have a large prostate. You don't have any STDs in general who can also make these symptoms as well. It's a good thing. Mm. And that's really also to focus on the positive part as well. And also, and, and it's a little bit of a different view as well. Of course, you, uh, one way you want to know the source, but in one way, it's a good that it's nothing of these kinds. And this also helps a little bit with the introduction to go to the nervous system. What we discussed last time a little bit on our podcast with, uh, with the attention and, and uh, the expectations and so on. And that's a little bit to start working on with as well. It's a good thing that they didn't find anything. Yeah. That's, uh, and, that's, and that's to take that a step backwards or forwards. It's in general, it's really important for our health professions that, it, um, that all the red flags have been cleared out. So if you have, if you see those patients and they come, uh, you know, they haven't had those examinations and so on, it's important they have to do that first because it's always a possibility there's a red flag underneath it and it has to be cleared off to provide a safe treatment and that they ha don't have unnecessary, perhaps even harmful treatments. Mm. Before we talk about uh, the um, nervous system, let's talk about that. Let's talk about those red flags. Mm -hmm. uh, in general, from the red flags, you mean what, what could be a, or what needs to be cleared out? I think or, let's let's keep it really simple and and let's think about. Of course, we can add complexity on top of this. Let's think about someone who's you know, a couple of years out of university and is starting to see a variety of people, including mm -hmm. men with um, chronic pelvic pain. Could be anyone who comes in through the door as a primary contact practitioner. Let's just list a few of these non-negotiable red flag questions and 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 um, tests that we need to be doing. So uh, you start. Yeah, so, well, <laughs> <laughs> so in, in general, so because like, uh, the question in the beginning is a little bit of the, the general health. How mm. are they doing in general? And are there any, any um, signs in, in that way? Uh, for example, when you have men's health, so um, it's not really a, a red flag in general, but it's a, it's a, an important issue is, for example, the metabolic syndrome. And metabolic syndrome is, is in general not a red flag. You say, I cannot treat them. But when you have the metabolic syndrome, syndrome obesity, cardiovascular, uh, high cholesterol, hypertension, and perhaps also insulin problems as well, it's a big issue because when you look at those, uh, it's like uh, hypertension or diabetics, uh, or diabetics could be also a sign, uh, a, a symptom could be an overactive bladder. You need to go more to the toilet. Uh, diabetics could also be a, a problem for uh, erectile dysfunction. When you take hypertension as well, it's also for erectile dysfunction in combination perhaps with the low libido. Um, an erectile dysfunction in general could be a sign of a cardiovascular disease. So sometimes of these men's health issues uh, could be just a symptom for something big behind it. And that's a little bit of, of in general in that way. Then when you have, um, when you perhaps you focus a little bit more on the uh, prostate, like when there's a, a, an 18-year-old uh, uh, patient coming into the, the clinic, like prostate cancer, is, is very likely, but when somebody goes over 50 or 60, it could be a chance as well that they have it. And that's always, a, and then it's a little bit when you say, go back, for example, to, to, to the bladder function, that could example have a, a great influence on the, on the bladder function as well. And that's a little bit of the, um, the questions or a little bit of the differentiation where you need to make as well. If there's uh, any problems with the voiding, you know, uh, or the, the, the storage room, and when avoiding is a slow stream, weak stream, and so on, it could be a sign perhaps of an enlarged prostate, but it could also be a sign perhaps from a uh, cancer in the prostate or prostate cancer and so on. And that's a little bit focused on really specific on the man's health as well. Mm. And the other is not really a red flag, but it's a yellow flag. It could be the uh, source or it could be the cause is, is the mental health. When you talk about anxiety, when you talk about depression, uh, perhaps a trauma, 
Uh, this is also really when you talk about a chronic pain state, like chronic pelvic pain, or even if you talk about sexual health, it will definitely aggravate these symptoms as well. And that's also good to find out how are these yellow flags in it. And they already have a really specific on, uh, on men's health, red flags or yellow flags. Mm. So it's more nuanced answer to my question than I was first going for, which is really good. And that um, there's there's lists of questions you can you can memorize and you can ask and probably at the you know, the, the first year undergraduate level that's good you know you, you should be asking generally about if it's someone with lumbar spine pain or pelvic pain we always need to be asking about the spinal questions related to the spinal cord or cord or equina and as an educator those questions are often asked in a uh, very unsophisticated way. And we always encourage the students to practice it with different people and say these questions out loud and don't make yep. the first time you ever ask them with a patient or in a clinical exam. Um, they're worth practicing. And we, we keep it simple and say, you know, do you have any trouble starting or stopping the flow of urine? Any trouble controlling your bowels? It's just a very general screening question. And then of course, the, the question is, well, when you're practicing with a, another healthy person, they always say no, and then you move on. But what you touched on there was the follow-up questions, maybe thinking about the, the slow stream of urine. Mm -hmm. Did you, you had another one there as well, thinking that was sort of related uh, to- weak, slow and weak startings problem could be as well. It's uh, the afterwards, the feeling of, of, of uh, not complete emptiness of the bladder. Right. Uh, and and what is what is, as an overactive bladder, which is a really common pathology that you've mentioned a couple of times, what would these symptoms be that you'd be screening for? No, in in general, it's it's always the action. What or the, the question is a little bit what is normal? So an overactive, mm -hmm. so a normal uh, uh, frequency of going to the toilet could be some say seven to eight times in during the day during twenty four hours. Others say between four and ten times in twenty four hours. And when it's more than that, and if it's also that's one, but it's a little bit, I would say, quite subjective because sometimes. I mean, when you go drinking with your mates and you watch a, a, a football game or an Aussie rules football game, when you drink a couple of beer, you know, your frequency goes up, but it couldn't be bothersome. And I think the, also with the overactive bladder is when it has become bothersome, when you right. have the feeling, okay, it influenced my daily life. In when, when I leave the apartment, uh, I first need to go to the toilet. Uh, where's the toilet when I go to this room and so on. And that's a little bit of the bothersome and it influences your daily life. And I think that's a really important part also of our overactive bladder. Because sometimes um, it's, 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 the frequency is more, but they say, okay, I know I drink a lot of, uh, I drink a cafe with a glass of water. I know it's, it's, I have to go more. Uh, I enjoy two cups of tea or three cups of tea in the morning. I know it's, it, it tastes really well. I can relax with it. But I know afterwards I have to go every hour to the toilet. But it shouldn't, it's not really a problem. But in so that's a little bit of, of in general from what is normal and when but when you have the feeling it's becoming uh, so anormal or it becomes bothersome, and the other thing as well is is in the night nocturia. So normally they say once a night it's normal when you have the feeling it gets uh, two or as they say from two it will get nocturia. You get the definition of that one, and yes, sometimes people wake up eight times during the night and have to go to the toilet. And that's mm -hmm. a little bit of when you slowly start to get an overactive bladder. And what we mentioned before with the red flags again, then you start, okay, is it perhaps a bladder infect? Um, is it a urinary tract infect? It could be an enlarged prostate with men. Uh, it creates a little bit pressure in, in the bladder as well. And it could cause these problems as well. And that's a little always the beginning, the differentiation, rule out the red flags. When that's done and they have these, okay, they say everything is fine, we can't find anything, then uh, it's for us to find out, okay, what are aggravating factors, what are perhaps ease of factors, and it's, uh, it could be your drinking strategy, but it could also be what we discussed last time, the paying attention to it and the expectations, I have to go to the toilet. So mm -hmm. the, the acute, uh, you know it as a runner as well, when you go to a running event and when you, you're like you have an hour, an hour before it starts and you just look at the toilets, you have always a huge queue for the toilets and yeah. people get out of the toilets and they stand back in the queue again and they wait again till they go again. 
And then after the finish, after the run, nobody stands at the toilets anymore. Yeah. And there's a little bit of an acute, I would say, overactive bladder because you can go two or three times in an hour. And there's just a stressful situation before the start. And I have to empty my bladder or else it, it will influence my time and so on. And that's also a little bit of, of everybody has it or when you have an exam or when you know I can't go to the toilet for two or three hours now, you always have a little bit of a distress in that situation and that really activates the, the, the frequency even more. Interesting. And that, so that nocturnia and that, that, so that, that frequency of, of going to the toilet at nighttime, that really links into the bother. If that's if you're getting up eight times at night because of pain, we often screen about pain as a as a red flag potential um, sign of of inflammation, even cancer. So night pain, um, but thinking of other things that can wake you up at night. And as soon as your sleep is disrupted, that's going to feed back and affect the immune system and your um, your endocrine circle. system you mentioned that was a really nice summary of the um, of how the you know endocrine system, cardiovascular health, and everything can link back into these conditions. So, uh, in my mind here, and on my piece of paper that's in front of me, uh, I've got a, a, a nice flow chart with all these different contributing factors and pathologies and, and and things we can assess that are all sort of linked together. And there's it's quite complex. Uh, I think. If you were going to be a, if, give some key messages to students, I mean, the, a key message that keeps coming up for me here is that is it bothering the person, and yeah. is it is it affecting their quality of life, and is it setting off their alarm? So their their nervous system is the nervous system responding to it, which is going to make it chronic or persistent, and not Definitely. missing red flags. You've mentioned that a few times. Just don't. So they may you may not know whether it's a UTI or an or overactive bladder or, or a um, prostatitis. You mentioned um, STD, um, STDs. Uh, you, you might not know what the diagnosis is, like anything. But if you're asking the questions and normalizing the conversation about that as a practitioner, it has to be helpful in directing the person towards their doctor or the urologist or a, a senior clinician practitioner rather than just asking the basic questions or no questions and just sort of getting target fixation and thinking about their hip and or their lower back and let's think yeah. more broadly about the the pelvis and all those organs and structures the sexual health you've mentioned the um, and and the mental health the links to all of the person's mental health and um, and sexual health it just so there's, there's a lot of connected factors here um, Keep going. I'm learning a lot. What else can you teach us? <laughs> it's great. <laughs> but then, so, 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 for example, when we continue with, with the overactive bladder, so, in, in, so I had an example as well, somebody who drinks five liters of water a day. And, and, uh, wow. and they, their complaint is the frequency they have to go to the toilet. And then in one way, it's, it's a little bit of the, the interaction to, to communicate that it's way too much uh, fluid intake. And then you have to convince them that say two to two and a half liters is way than is more than enough. Because if you drink weight, I mean, everything that goes in needs to go out. So it, for, 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 for us, it made a lot of sense uh, that your frequency is higher, but sometimes for the patient, it isn't, isn't because they have read something or some famous sportman drinks so much uh, water. So they need to do it as well. But in special, we also have to warn for them as well. When they drink so much water, it also is not healthy for the heart. It's not healthy for the kidney because mm. everything is overused. Your everything is 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 flooded out of it. All the good stuff as well, and that's all could be a health uh, a health issue. It could you could, it could harm themselves with that uh, strategy. And that's a little bit of the where you have to okay adapt. Okay, you, you have to convince them to drink less. Now, the problem in the beginning is they drink so much money, uh, so much uh, water that if they drink less, they get thirsty really quick. And then you think, oh, somebody uh -huh. has to drink so much because he's thirsty. The first red flag is going up is perhaps diabetics. And then you have to say, okay, oh, right, has yeah. it been cleared up for, have you had any uh, diabetics issue or anything else? They have to go to the, to the GP or to the urologist to test it if there's any uh, um, diabetics going on, yes or no. And if it's not, then you continue on the lifestyle changes and then and, and say, okay, drink less. Or you have also people drink two liters of water and six uh, coffees. 
Now, yeah, when you know the effect of coffee, yeah, you need to go more to the toilet. And then in combination with drinking a lot of water, it's a little bit of a lifestyle change or a habit, which you need to change to, to make the, the, the quality of life better. With the nocturia, so in the evening, they say in general, don't drink two hours um, before you go to bed. That's already the empty, a little bit of uh, empty actually in that way. And that's a little bit also the convincement. So in one way, that's a really practical way. And the other thing as well, you need to train uh, the nervous system again. And there's also a little bit of the discussion as well, what you mentioned before with, with uh, nausea, but also a full bladder feeling is also an output. So it's, it's not an input, it's an output. So it's like pain is a warning for you. You have perhaps a uh, damage of, of some tissue. It could be a potential damage. It's also the filament of, of your bladder. It's a warning, so you need to empty your bladder. And sometimes the, the system goes off and off and off, and even if the bladder is empty. And then, then it's always the, ask, the question, if they go so much to the toilet, do you, is there something coming out? How much fluid is coming out of the bladder as well? And when they say there's not much coming out of it, then you know it's a little bit, perhaps it's a little bit more of the nervous system. And then it's, it's, it's not the pain neuroscience, it's just the neuroscience education. Mm. And then you have to train, okay, it's your attention, it's the expectation, and so on. And it's, it creates a little bit of a stress as well because they're so focused on the bladder then that they really need to go. And that would be a strategy to say, okay, I have the feeling I have to go now. Wait a 15 minutes. Just wait, just don't go straight away. And that's why you train a little bit also the stretching effect of the bladder as well. Interesting, or, uh, okay. Or start running, start moving, start doing sports. It creates also another input in the nervous system and it creates, it helps also uh, a little bit of the, the focus on the bladder and it helps also the night quality of a better sleep quality as well. I've never thought about that way. This is really similar to the management of persistent pain, chronic pain, isn't it? Where you've got other, you know, so focusing on function and movement and other things and building up that tolerance. So that's, that's really interesting. You mentioned the, you made the, the link between the description of pain as an output of the central nervous system rather than an input, mm -hmm. which is your, your neuroscience education 101. Um, <laughs> and, but, but the, the sensation of the full bladder is, it's another output because this is the, the processing that's happening within the brain and, and that's something that could change. So you, so you'll give advice like that you after appropriate education. And once the, you've got buy-in, you'll say, okay, well, let, let's think about spending a little, put a little bit more time in between that output, that sensation of the full bladder and, and the, um, and, and going to the toilet and that way you have a, it is. yeah. Interesting. And sometimes they, they forget it as well. So I, you probably have it as well. I need to go to the toilet and there comes something in between. And then yeah. you look at the clock. So, oh, it's been an hour later already. And that's also, so in general, the, when you have the bladder health and, and the volume, so with a man, it could be between 400 and 600 milliliters of fluid can go in there. The first sign when you have to go to the toilet is when it's 50% full. So when you say your bladder has a capacity of, two, of 500 milliliters, with 250 milliliters is the first sign you have to go to the toilet. So it could, could the same amount can still go into it. And that's a little bit of a little bit of the knowledge when they have before. And when you say, okay, I wait for an half uh, for 50 minutes or, or a half an hour, or you, you can train that as well, just by the sensation of the input and the reaction of the output of the brain. And that's a little bit of those tricks. And if they know that, that, that sensation and they know it's okay, I feel the sensation, but I know I still can go in more. But with people with a really overactive bladder for a long period over time, the first sensation of uh, you have to go to the toilet is perhaps at 5% or 10% or 15%. It's just a common, uh, it's, it could be, and that's always the question, how much fluid comes out of it? You can measure it as well. And if you calculate it, that that's uh, with how much fluid they take in, how much comes out, and that should be a little bit of, 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 of equal. And especially when you go in, in the night, they have to go to the toilet eight times during the night. Now, yeah, when you have to, perhaps a man is like 500 milliliters or when say it's 250 milliliters, if you just calculated how much uh, fluids intake they had to take before that everything goes out, it usually doesn't fit in it. 
And that's a little bit they have to retrain the brain again or retrain the, the I say, the input to improve it. And during the day, it's reasonable, easy to do. During the night, it's really, really, really hard. Right. And that's a, that is a really a huge challenge. And that's that could take uh, weeks. And that's a, it takes a really lot of uh, yeah time, nerves uh, to retrain that. But once you have retrained that, the person's sleep improves because they're not waking up as frequently. Yep. So that's and the other way around. If, if it's the same as we, I mean, if, if you have a bad night of sleep, but the next day uh, you react more uh, intense on sounds, on smell, uh, on, on, on light. And if you and some patients have nine months or two years bad sleep quality, your nervous system is, is much easier to be aggravated in comparison when you have a couple of nights of good sleep. And so those noisy the- neighbors uh, become yeah. <laughs> much more bothersome. More intense. And yeah. you start banging on the wall and the floor. Yeah. And it's, and it's a little bit of a part of like a, a, also a part of a central sensitization is in there as well. And the central sensitization is, is, is an overreacting, uh, I say, uh, of, of the nervous system on, on perhaps on, on issues or, or, or inputs, but normally it's not really bothersome or doesn't influence you at all. But with the comparison, when you say, okay, the sleep quality is really, really bad, during the day, it's way more intense. My stress level goes up really quickly, really easy. And that's like a combination, but it's not really, or, uh, it helps to maintain it or aggravate the, 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 in, in the process where you're in. Mm, that's really an interesting summary and an angle, many angles I haven't thought of before. What about incontinence? Do you see, so, so I'll just take a step back in some context because Jody Dakey has been on the podcast before we share an office together and, um, Jody's research in, um, incontinence in active women has been really well received. It's been published in a, um, number of really good journals. Um, she just got an award, the sports medicine, Australia national conference for, um, for, um, research in women in sport, which is really good. So, so Jody's looked at incontinence and in women and its impact on physical activity. Um, we're, we're talking a lot about um, overactive bladder and, and, and bladder control and, and pain, um, sexual health and, and, and a number of other conditions that you've mentioned. So what about incontinence? Um, how prevalent is it? Is it, um, is it a problem that you work with people in the clinic with? Well, after this introduction, I hardly work any with any man with incontinence. Yeah. So with incontinence, it's a little bit. Uh, sometimes you can see it um, after a prostate uh, operation. Okay. Or when, when it, and, and usually they go. To, that's an own speciality in, in in that way when it's really okay. directed with that way. And I I don't see that much. But that's interesting though, because because if we're talking to people who aren't specializing in this area like you are, but may see someone coming in and they do the general screening questions and they find out about that the person is experiencing continence, there's even more cause to follow up on that. So you know, in terms of what, what is that, is that an immediate cause? Is it you know, a, a spinal cord or quarter equina problem, for yep. example, and what could it be? So yeah. And so, th- I mean, that's a question I could use the literature for. I could go and do a literature search but, uh, and find out the prevalence of, of that condition. But no, so in general, what you see in combination with uh, what we mentioned before, with, with an overactive bladder, it could be distress incontinence. Okay. And that could be a dry or a wet one. So it could be that at the one part and with out of the blue, they really have to see, I need to avoid at this moment. I really, really need to go to the toilet really, really quickly. And some can control it and they can reach the toilet uh, and, and they, they um, can do it. And others, they can't reach the toilet. And it's not in general that they have incontinence, but it's really in general with, in combination with the stress. And sometimes so so can- stress on physically on structures or, or we're talking about nervous system stress and psychological stress or both? So what, yeah, so I think in general, a little bit both. So it's not really that they find anything in, in, in other, what I know. So it's, it's, it's sometimes I see them uh, not when they have a wet incontinence, but a dry, so stress dry. It means that they can reach the toilet, but it's really unpleasant. And that's a little bit of, uh, it could be uh, a stress from the outside, could be a stress from the inside. 
And it's just really quickly, they have to run to it. And that's a little bit of, uh, you have some strategies, what they can do at that time is a combination with the overactive. So, um, for example, that is really to tighten up really quickly your pelvic floor a couple of times, like five, six times to reduce uh, this reflex in that way. That's, right, okay. that's what I see. But in the general incontinence, I don't see them at all actually in my clinic. Hmm. Because it's usually, it's, uh, it's, they come over the umbrella term chronic pelvic pain. Yeah, that's really interesting. So the, look, there's so much in there for us to dive into. Do you have any final thoughts? Let's summarize some of that for our listeners. In general, it, it's what we discuss now, the different terms. So it's, um, it's not that hard to manage, it, to manage it either. So in one way, you have to look when a patient comes in, especially when, when you know, okay, they've been cleared out from, from the urologist or the GP, you know, it's nothing red flags. And then it's a little bit to see, I would say, as a... Um, uh, it's not mine. It's from I think it's from Andrew Lowe, who's also a pain expert. He describes it like a car, and you have a flat tire. And when you have a car with its tires, you have certain things we have to work on. And one way it could be in general stress. Do they have a lot of stress? And how, uh, as a treatment for us, it could be stress management. Then you have the sleep quality, sleep impairments. Do they wake up during the night? Uh, they have a hard time falling asleep. Uh, how many hours do they sleep and so on. Then you have physical activity. How is that going on a physical inactivity? And you try to have them more active. Then you have a little bit of the dietary nutritions in that area. So what products can make it worse? What products can make it better? And then on the steering wheel, you can say, what are the maladaptive beliefs? And it's a little bit when you say, uh, we all had it in the beginning. So you say, okay, I work only on stress. But when they have four flat tires and you only work on one tire, okay. the car still <laughs> runs really badly. And sometimes you have those people coming in, they say, well, I, they really uh, do a lot of sports. So, you know, physical activity is not a problem. They look a lot of the dietary as well. That's not an issue. It's like, okay, those two tires are doing fine. So what are the other ones? And that's a little bit the, of the key to find out what is the main issue with this patient. Sometimes the maladaptive beliefs, especially when you talk about sexual health, is that they have all the information of a, a porno site. And they, they have some certain beliefs. It has to be like that. That's why they create much more stress. But the beliefs are so unrealistic. And the other hand as well, when we have the sleep management, we know when we have a couple of days really bad sleep, everything else is way more worse. So when you have a bad sleep quality, uh, the, you could get perhaps more prone for injuries, general injuries with physical activity. You know, your stress level is up. The other way around is when you start with physical activity, it's a good stress management option. It's a way, uh, it's good to helpful for your uh, sleep management. So usually the quality of sleep is better. And when you have a little bit of the maladaptive belief, sometimes it helps well to create more circulations in the brain, endorphins, and so on. There's a lot of uh, beneficial effects of all the other parts as well. And when you look at the dietary factors, I would say they always say about um, what you need to eat to, to have a, a, a healthier life or you live longer. I would say to turn it the other around. What do you need to do to die really uh, soon right. <laughs> and die really unhealthy? Is really so. For example, you have a couple of alcohol. When you drink a lot of alcohol, would it help <laughs> to deal your general health? What is the influence on chronic pelvic or chronic pain in general? Uh, how is it on your um, sexual dysfunction? How is it on your uh, to create uh, cancer, prostate cancer? So when you take smoking. Uh, is it helpful? Yes or no? So with smoking, uh, with this chronic pain condition, it can aggravate it way more. Perhaps it has a short-term effect. Uh, it eases it off a little bit. When you look at smoking and bladder health, of all the people who get a, a bladder cancer in the bladder, 80% of them are smokers or used to be smokers. So there's a huge link with it. When you look at prostate cancer, the same thing. So in that way, if, if you look at the products, um, you say junk food, fast food, and so on. It also creates a lot of, uh, especially with chronic pain or general health, it will definitely uh, aggravate it or, or make it worse. And that's a little bit also to look at the dietary factors. And 
that being healthy, just leave these things away or reduce it and will definitely help you away more than just to focus on one small part, just focus on the global things and what do I have to do to make it worse and leave it away? That is perhaps easier to understand as well. Sleep impairments. When you have a long time sleep impairments for your general health, is it's horrible. A lot of stress is horrible. So and that that's a little bit of uh, yeah, a little bit of the general uh, life changes what they may or may not do, but it has a significant influence. You've made really clear connections between all these on the surface. Um, unrelated factors and you've really made the relationships between those factors really clear and the flat tire analogy I really like as an analogy of as as really an argument for avoiding too much specialization of one thing that you do you might be really good at changing that left front tire for somebody and it, it may need to acknowledge that, that person is left front tire is pretty good and there <laughs> there are other tires that are flat and the, with the, your example of physical activity and and diet for one person was okay for example but other factors needed work so your your analogies here um for a men's health focused episode are on point aren't they you've got the flat tires the noisy neighbors with the music turned up <laughs> and the dodgy garlic kebabs so you can go back and Recycle and reuse some, some of your analogies. Take home message. <laughs> they're, they're, they're very yarp analogies, knowing you well, and they, they work. I like them. So we've given listeners, given me quite a lot of um, food for thought there. Really good information. I've taken a whole page of notes. I hope listeners are getting a lot out of this as well. We're really grateful for your time, Yarp. We're going to come back and do another episode um, soon, and we're going to talk about um, – you're a completely different topic. You as a, a clinician or a practitioner, whatever you want to be referred to as, doing research. And um, and we're also, we've got a couple of other topics we're going to talk about as well, but we'll, we'll save that for the future. Um, I just wanted to remind everyone, I guess it's probably a timely reminder. I put this in the show notes. And if you've been looking at them. There's lots of good timestamps of when interesting things have been said and also the links to people's bios and where you can track the guests down. Um, and in those show notes, I always write this. This is a discussion aimed at health professionals and health profession students. Always seek the guidance of a qualified health professional with any questions you may have regarding your health or a medical condition. So, I mean, that's common sense, I hope. But just a reminder to everyone that we are talking to other health professionals and health profession students. So certainly if, you, if you're listening to this as someone who has a health condition, you found some of this helpful, that's fantastic, but always seek that guidance of a, of a professional because they do this for a living. And listening to YARP, you can get a sense for some of the things you may not have thought of and, and the, you know, the invaluable assistance someone who's trained in these areas can give to you. So really grateful for your wisdom and um, contributions and everything you've um, taught us today. Yeah. So thanks a lot. You're welcome. I enjoyed it. So we'll talk soon until next time or until then, this is Yarp Switters and Luke Periton wishing you all the very best with your studying, professional development and lifelong learning. <laughs> <laughs>